you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with James Nokise, who I met on a Sunday night by a canal in Camden, and we, we went to Acosta because it was the only place that was still open. Uh, thank you, everybody who read my Edinburgh blog. Uh, thank you, everybody who is contributing to my Patreon, which is really, really lovely. Thank you. You make this podcast possible. The more people listen, the higher my hosting costs are, and uh, this makes it possible for me to just keep doing the podcast without worrying about that. It also made it possible for me to buy these new microphones, and it makes it possible for me to buy my guests tea, which sometimes, as an artist, I don't have, you know, huge wellsprings of money, but I'd like to be able to offer my guests something, and I can always offer them tea because of what you guys contribute on the Patreon. So patreon.com slash Alice Fraser if if you want to give. Otherwise, just enjoy the fact that there are some people who are doing that and that it makes me happy. Uh, That said, what else do I need to say? I will be back in Sydney this Friday. I will be doing a uh, live recording a pod uh, like a, a dvd recording i guess except i don't know if we're going to make it into a dvd uh, at the giant dwarf in sydney on friday night the 9th of september if you are in sydney or if you have friends in sydney please send them it's quite a big theater i, I think it would be really uh, weird and embarrassing to do it in front of not many people um I, i'm sure we could put little cardboard cutouts in but they don't laugh the same as normal people after that, I'll be flying back to Melbourne. I will be doing uh, some gigs in Melbourne, uh, particularly the resistance at the Butterfly Club from the 4th to the 9th of October. I'll be, I'll be around back in Australia for a little while and then I'm trying to come back to London. But uh, that, that will all depend on work and visas. And if you are in the UK and run a corporation that wants to do a bunch of very well-paid corporate gigs let me know about them or if you're just a listener who wants to say hello alicerfraser at gmail.com is the place to do that i always really love the letters that i get and they're always so thoughtful you guys don't do things by halves i don't think i've ever got a one-line email from a listener they're always really thoughtful really deep really interesting really engaged and it makes me really happy to know that that's the kind of person who listens to my podcast. All right, I'm going to stop rambling. I'm just rambling because I'm a bit sick. Um, excuses, excuses, Fraser. Enjoy listening to the conversation I had with James Nokise. I really enjoyed having it. I overstepped the mark a few times, but that's, I think, what we're meant to do. Well, I get to say it's what we're meant to do in this podcast. We're meant to say things and then back off them because it's a safe place to explore ideas. Thank you so much for listening. You're having tea with Alice. A chain tea shop, and you are—you have the biggest. It's a two-handled chai mug. It is the—it's right. genuinely the size of your head. Thankfully, you went, thankfully, I keep in shape. Yeah, like it is. Ac- it's actually. This is a massive like. I don't it's know a who challenge. Th- who drinks that? I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm drinking it for fun and novelty. And because, yeah. you know, it might be a long podcast. Yeah. But who, yeah, are people walking in every morning, do you think? And like going, I need, I need liquid this much. And it's not only that I need a chai latte, I need a kilo of chai latte. It's a soup bowl. It's a soup bowl of chai latte. It's, yeah, there's, there's problems. 
there are issues with the chai latte. So, I've been wanting to talk to you for ages, yes. and there are so many ideas that I want to pick your brains about. Um, I am looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Actually, yeah, since we first discussed it. I mean, like, all right, cool, let's sit down. Okay. I'm so glad we can do this in, like, London. Too. Yeah, it's amazing. And looking over the canal, which is sort of the beautiful, sort of almost post-apocalyptic appeal in that there's sort of a d slightly dirty canal water and then there's overgrown weeds and there's a danger sign and it's all quite decrepit but beautiful in its own sort of awful way. I mean, people, I mean, yeah, look at the shimmer of that water. That's very... Renaissance kind of, yeah. you know, moonlight. It's really amazing. I think people forget that London is post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Like the city got totally blitzed. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. Um, it's my mum grew up in that. And uh, my aunties and that uh, lived in it. It's real weird. In the like, post-blitzed blitz world. Yeah, my auntie who I stay with in Edinburgh, she um, she grew up in, um, in Blitz, London. Aisha and Tyler makes the really good point of like when people have post-apocalyptic fantasies, they forget. Mm. That the world has already ended in a lot of places for a lot of people. Yeah. It's a real sort of arrogant thing to fantasize about that as though you might enjoy it when there are people in the world whose worlds have already ended. I mean, that's why I like, like, I love the zombie genre, but I do find the fascination that people have with um, Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, all that stuff. It's like, that stuff happens in the world. Like, you don't yeah, need you to can do that if you want to. You can yeah. be in those places. Yeah, there are people desperate for food running around en masse. Ooh. And there is a lot of rape and yeah. like, violence. Of under I mean, one in four women. This is a UNICEF stat yeah. which shocked me. I was doing it for a song. <laughs> uh, one in four women worldwide are child brides. Wow, man. And given that I don't know any. There's places where there's a lot more than one in four. I do some work with the uh, Sexual Abuse Prevention Network in New Zealand, um, going into schools and that. And mm. the stats there are like, I think it's been one of the strange things the last couple of years is learning about how bad it is in New Zealand. And, what, and like, compared to, to the rest home. of the world, like, we have this weird thing in New Zealand where we compare everything to other countries, mm. especially to Oz. Like, mm. I just, we just had a race relations commission started a a new thing this week where they were getting people to tell their stories of experiencing racism to highlight that it happens in New Zealand. Yeah. But the press release, twice in the press release it goes, I mean, obviously it's not as bad as Australia. I'm like, what are you doing? What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> I was having an interesting conversation today with a girl who's been here for about 13 years and she's half Australian Aboriginal mm. in her uh, extraction. Mm. And... Uh, she was talk we were talking about the difference between the the treaties or mm. non-treaties that happened insofar as it, 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 there's a similarity in culture between the Maori in New Zealand and the British colonizers that doesn't exist between mm. the Australian Aboriginal and the British colonizers which meant that when the British colonizers arrived in Australia mm. there was no communication Mm. There was no understanding of one another's cultures. The British thought they were making a deal with one group and there's 200 different countries. And so they'd, they'd make a deal with one group and then they'd walk 400 metres to the left and meet a completely different group. Which is really weird if you stop and think about it. Because we're in... How many different dialects do they have in England? I'm yeah. just like in this city, how exactly. many different dialects of English you hear? But they already had knocked... That, they, they'd sort of assumed that there would be a king or a central authority. Yeah. And then their reaction to confusion and misunderstanding was kill everybody. Yeah. 
which is not the right reaction. It's like, as I was saying this morning, it's like a rom-com, but instead of like storming off into the sunset, you pull out a gun. What's the, uh, it's the action of a toddler. It's Yeah, it's, it's a tantrum. I don't understand what's going on. I thought we had a deal, I blow everything everybody. up. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I mean, just from the, being recently in Wellington at the museum, mm. when the British troops arrived, mm. when, when the fleet came, there were people waiting on the cliffs with weapons. Yeah. Ready. They were ready. They knew the game. They were playing the same game. Well, Māori have been fighting each other as well. But also the Pacific had been at war before. Yeah. And the only thing that actually stopped a lot of those wars were uh, Europeans showing up with superior technology. Yeah. Which is a classic case of um, colonialism. But the Māori invented trench warfare. I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah, I found that out at the, at the museum, which yeah. is super fascinating um, And I, I have a joke I do... Um, which is that the British stole it and um, then got destroyed in France because they were too arrogant to steal the escape tunnel as well, <laughs> which is paramount too. They didn't just entrench warfare. Yeah. yeah, the pass system um, is is built so that a small force can hold against a larger force, but also so they can run away. So they can run away because there's nothing wrong with running away, especially if you have a relationship to the land where you are of the land. I think that's what the British could never understand. I don't know much about the Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal culture, yeah. but if it's anything like Māori in terms of their relationship to the land, I think that's what they've never got. The people and the land are one. It's, yeah. it's not the people own the land. The people are guardians of land, but they are also part of the land. Yeah, I think with, I mean, I don't pretend to know a huge amount, although I have you know, I have friends and I've done some work with, like, particularly in the legal, on the legal side of things. Mm. But as far as I understand, like, one of the biggest misunderstandings was this idea of, uh, of terra nullius. Mm. The idea that if you owned the land or were related to the land or you had possession over it in whatever way, because actually, British, there is a tradition of kind of the king was part of the land. Your land was your blood and your blood. That, mm. there, like that was part of the, of the British tradition. Mm. But the sense was that if you, if you owned it or if you were related to it, it was your job to tame it and cultivate it and possess it in that kind Master of way. It. Master it in the same way, you know, as you would say, you know, I don't know, I, I own this dog. So it's mm. my job to neuter it and to, you know, make sure it has its vaccinations and so on and so forth. I own whereas, this wife. Yeah. Whereas this was the thing that I, I got. And uh, again, this could be a misunderstanding of my own kind of experience. It's like if you're out in the outback mm. for long enough, mm. if you're in the land in Australia for long enough, when you see a house or a building or a road, it looks monstrous. <laughs> like there's something there's something about the religion that that these countries had before the Australian white mm. you know people arrived mm. that it would it, building on the land was sort of why would you do that it, you, it was against the idea of building mm. so part of looking after the land was not marking it building things that were temporary these these hutchies and these small things that would almost immediately disintegrate when you left. Not mm. making a mark on the land was your sign of relationship to it and respect for it. Yeah. And that was just the complete misunderstanding mm. that these people arrived and said, well, if you haven't made a mark on it, it means you don't love it, you don't care about it, you don't want it. It's not yours. We're going to build things on it. Whereas 
and again, that's my, that might be me overreaching, but that, that was it. Like, you, mm. that was why... Because it wasn't as though Aboriginal Australian people didn't have access to technology. There yeah. was trading between Indonesia and Australia. There was, you know, there was access to those things. If you had wanted to build castles, you could have. Is it 40,000 years? Is that what they, yeah. they say that, yeah, that's the genealogy what the is? Current, that's what the current um, possibly record... Longer, yeah, that's what yeah. the current, um, you know archaeological proof record is and, and yeah. specifically the most recent kind of confirmation was that it is that genetic template that is that old it's not different people who've yeah. come in the way that i think in new zealand there were like different tribes and different yeah. groups who came in and fought with one another and conquered one another it was yeah, the but same but bloodline even in then Australia. that's like you're talking about maybe i apologize to any maori listeners if i get the dates wrong about 700 ad yeah you know I mean, 40,000, that's like Africa old, right? Yeah, that's proper, prop. that's like split off old. I'm my, I guess my point of, of highlighting that is how arrogant to come in and think, well, these guys don't know what they're doing. Yeah, they've like, done it wrong. Yeah, you guys, oh, you guys have been doing this right. It's like, we, to be honest, man, we've, we've kind of, we've got this whole symmetry thing well, They just never thought about building a house here. Let's assume they never thought yeah. about building a house or a castle or a well, road. Like when Europeans showed up in the Pacific wearing like, you guys all have to wear clothes. Now, what do you mean by clothes? Oh, real heavy, thick cottons. You know when the New Zealand army invaded Samoa, bless their hearts, 1,500 soldiers, first act of war that New Zealand committed in, wow. in World War I uh, was to go and uh, liberate <coughs> slash yeah. appropriate Samoa from its German occupiers. Now, the German occupiers were not great occupiers, but as occupiers go compared to New Zealand, they were actually a little bit better, although they did banish a whole bunch of chiefs. Like, they were brutal, but they were efficient. As war, the Germans I mean, were yeah. back there. War, war is war is war, but... But um, they showed up, this 1500 task force, wearing wool. New Zealand wool from the South Island. Oh, no. To Samoa. Yeah. To take part in a battle. Like, that's... For me, that's a hilarious arrogance. They detained Samoans in a jail which only had three walls. The fourth wall was the ocean because, of course... Not everyone can swim, unless you are literally translated as the people of the ocean. Yeah. In which case you can probably... So what some prisoners would do, would they would swim out, go and do work in their village, and then come <laughs> back and be in the cell for the... Because they, they need to get their work done, but they also they didn't want to escape. They didn't want to bring shame to the village, but they also need to get work done. So they just swim out, do their work, and then come back to the cell. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. I mean, there's a really good, and I mean, this is going to sound strange. I wrote my undergraduate honours thesis on uh, romance novels, on the narrative rhetoric of, of historical romance novels specifically. Yeah. And there's this woman, Georgette Heyer, who writes, they're essentially romance novels, but they're hugely specifically accurate historically. And so one of them uh, is called The Spanish Bride, and it's set in Spain with the, you know, like Waterloo mm. and the, all of that, that whole... Ca long campaign that happened and you know it's central around one soldier who meets a, a mm. Spanish lady in their kind of you know fraught relationship but all of the stuff around it all of the battles all of the and the descriptions that she's drawn mm. from the letters of the soldiers of those marches yeah as you say full suits they had these high stock collars they'd be walking the mountains and they'd swell and yeah. their faces would go black or they'd choke on their collars because they and they had they put cornstarch in their hair for that white powder effect. Oh right. 
and they'd sweat and it would clump up and then it would start to stink. Amazing. Just this just brut brutally horrible campaign because they had to maintain the appearance of the British Army. It's so, yeah, uh, the impracticalities. I, I, guess we, I guess we take solace as people from traditions. I guess it gives us some sense of stability. Yeah. You know, it's, I don't think we really understood existentialism back then. So people would just kind of have moments of enlightenment and go, wait, what am I doing? And then everyone would go, well, this person must be crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, they say, I, I, I don't know who said this, um, but it struck me the other day. Someone said, tradition is the democracy that includes the vote of the dead. That's interesting. So that, you know, in, a, in any democracy, everyone has a voice, but the dead don't have a voice. But the dead have a voice through tradition. This is the way it was always done before. Right. Uh, yeah, so they, they, they sort of imprint a sort of a, f a blueprint for the future. The problem with the dead and democracy is they really outnumber the living. So that's Hugely. very that's skewered voting. That's very a lot much. Of skewered voting. Well, in the same way that there's traditions that are so clearly very, very, very outdated. We think they're clear. Yeah. It's one thing growing up in the Pacific Church taught me is that uh, tradition is a very powerful force and it can stand straight in the face of practicality, um, of w wisdom, of common sense, and be unmovable. Um, like wearing wool into a tropical... Like wearing wool into a tropical country. <laughs> but it's... Um, but also because of that, I think, the stability, because of that unmovingness, it does give people strength because it provides an anchor for them yeah. to like tie their lives to. So no matter where the world blows them around, they can always look back to that. Um, it took me a long time to be comfortable with the fact that that's what a lot of my family have done. Um, yeah. And I have not. Uh, You've moved away from tradition. Oh, hello. Yes. Uh, as pretty much dramatically as that clang. <laughs> Someone dropped a pile of plates on the traditions of their forefathers. Uh, so did you fight it out? Was there a time that you moved away from your family specifically or was it a slow drift? No, it was a slow drift, um, and which was good because it allowed for a lot of conversations. I'm very lucky in that my family, while we don't communicate often, um, we communicate clearly. That's so important. Because we don't communicate often. So, like, I called my dad today because uh, it's Father's Day in New Zealand. And I just made sure that before either of us had hung up, I'd, I'd covered everything that I needed him to hear me say yeah. and made sure I'd, I'd got him to answer any questions I have. Because I honestly don't know next time we'll talk. And I don't know next time we'll be in the same country. So I don't take that for granted. I think that's helped as well. My yeah. parents have been in separate countries from me as I've come into adulthood. Uh, my mum was in the UK, uh, and then I moved over to the UK, and then she moved back to New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what she was trying to tell me. And then my dad was in Fiji, uh, teaching um, for through all that time. So we've very rarely actually been in the same country. As a family. Yeah, yeah. which is probably for the best. We're all quite stubborn <laughs> uh, personalities. Well, now that we've had a bit of a breakdown of, of sort of cultural stuff, mm. do you have any difficult ideas that you wanted to, like, step through with me? Any particularly challenging things that are either challenging you or that you're finding yourself challenging other people with? Do you want to talk about Lena Dunham? 
Sure. Uh, only about whatever it, you like. Only because it's popped up in my Facebook feed. And maybe we can talk about this from an Antipodean angle. Yeah, Because sure. one of the things that's frustrated me, we'll, we'll, we'll ease into it. We'll <laughs> ease into it. One of the things that's frustrated me since Brexit in the UK yeah. is the amount of loud, opinionated voices coming out of New Zealand. Like, for and against. And I just go, you're not British citizens. It's not your fight, mate. It's not, well, it's not, even, not even that. Like, it's not your fight. It's... It annoys me that we have such massive problems of immigration, of racism, happening at home, and yet people throw their energy into Brexit. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like... And Lena Dunham, and... And Lena Dunham, that's what I mean. Like, I, I very quickly cover my thoughts on Lena Dunham. I think it's actually a really beautiful example of... Uh, a person who generally does good things slipping up and then hearing people calling them out yeah. and responding. Yes. I think the way that's so all played out... So if the listener out. doesn't know, Lena Dunham made a joke at the Met Gala about... Well, two jokes running. One was about um, a guy who she felt saw her, didn't like the way she looked and ignored her. Mm. And then saying she, she, stuck, she stuck around for 20 more minutes to grind on another guy and then left. Sort of painting the whole thing as a sort of a, a, a humiliating exercise in female inadequacy, which would have gone probably unremarked being on brand for Lena Dunham, except mm-hmm. that the two guys that she was talking about were black athletes. Yes, and the um, feeling was that what she had actually done was reinforce negative cultural stereotypes of African-Americans. Um, as uh, hypersexualized, um, both in physique and in their desire of Caucasian women. Yes. Um, and she initially pushed back, just going, "No, no, guys, I was just doing what I always do." Um, and but then she she began to listen. Which to I the think voices. she was doing what she always does. Yes. But she didn't think about the implications, and yeah. I think that's sort of where it becomes interesting, because then you go, "Well, if she had no ill intent." Mm. I genuinely don't think she registered the problematic no, kind of... No, the, I don't read it as malicious. The tradition that she was feeding into... I think she would have said that if it had been Alec Baldwin who looked at her in that way, mm. whatever it happens to be. But I do think that then when she said those words in that context, then it did feed into this kind of narrative. One of the main things I've found with racism, which I've ended up... And part of the reason I, I still make shows about it after doing comedy for 14 years in New Zealand, and I still get people going, man, why are you still talking about race? It's because for me, one of the, uh, the big problems isn't just the racism itself. It's the lack of acknowledgement of trauma, like, let alone getting to the acknowledgement of racism. It's acknowledging that people can be offended, like that trauma may have occurred. Yeah. And it's... Well, yeah. it's, I think... Bef- I think that's the thing. People don't want to think of themselves as injuring other people. I had this with a a friend of mine who I cut out of my life, Mm. in part because he was uh, seriously mentally ill. Mm. But it it meant that every every time he sort of went into these loops of thinking, I was the target of those loops. And I said, I I don't don't like being poison. Mm. And nothing that I'm doing... My sort of just being myself mm. is intended to hurt you. Mm. And so I'm going to move away from you as a person because it seems like we can't be 
in proximity with one another without me being toxic to you. But it's because it was such a terrible feeling to just not have changed anything about what I was doing, going on with my normal day-to-day life, mm. and then all of a sudden being perceived to be hurtful or ignoring him or whatever whatever the things were that he w- w- was feeding into his mm. his sense of our friendship disintegrating when I felt that nothing had changed. And I think that there's a similar thing at play with racism where people go, but it's always been like that. You haven't ever complained before. Yeah. And you, you don't want to acknowledge that you're hurting somebody. You don't want to be injurious to somebody else just by being yourself. And I think people who are white and privileged, like me, or at least I pass as, hmm. um, Hey, I'm borderline. <laughs> I've been in this you part of the world way. way too long. I'm I'm paling by the week. It, well, I, I certainly um, can pass. Mm. So just by existing, you suddenly feel like you're doing damage to these people who mm. you have no ill will towards. And I think people re- react really badly to that. I think you're right. I think people and don't want to be the that's me giving the best guy. possible intent. And I think there's a stripe of, of ill intent that goes below that that's worth looking at separately but I do think this kind of a lot of people are really just resentful on being called on stuff that never hurt anyone before it wasn't a big deal before how come it's suddenly a big deal I'm just doing my stuff I'm just being me Hmm. and they react really badly I think it's yeah I think it's also look at who calls you like you know it's one of the things that frustrated me in New Zealand was I saw all this for and against and it was all Caucasian uh, now maybe that's just because of the makeup of my my Facebook and Twitter feeds. Yeah. You know, but then the Pacific artists and the Maori artists um, had a few posts about it. Yeah. And it was mainly going, well, no, this is racist. But they had a stronger discussion because they were, yeah, but she wasn't meaning to be racist. And look what she's done for women. And that was actually I saw more of the conversation that it looks like Leonard Dunham's going to have or has had play out in the brown communities in New Zealand online yeah. than in the Caucasian communities because in the Caucasian communities it all became race suddenly got pushed to the side and it wasn't about race it was about women Yeah. and it frustrates me not as a man or not as a coloured man but as someone who has uh been a victim of bigotry is that I'm also the son of a woman who's been a victim of bigotry like we are actually connected minorities and women I don't class women as minorities because they're not we're not a minority but that's sort of the the terrible thing is that you are a you're disempowered majority yeah but then and people think that that means how can you be disempowered as a majority surely if women wanted to change the world they would have done it before now when the reality is throughout all of history, you have a slave class. Yeah. You've had a vast majority of people working for a very small minority. Yeah, and it's... Why, yeah, why, why can't we have both, both sides looking at... Yeah, like, what am I clumsily working my way towards? I guess I get annoyed because the amount of times I see staunch feminists and staunch race advocates fighting each other instead of fighting the people that oppress them yes becomes very disheartening see what i would find really interesting if is if this discussion were to play out um say who was the guy who she 
said, looked uh, at her and dismissed her and disregarded her for not being... Abdel Jr. I'm not an NFL guy. Yeah, she said, guy. Uh, uh, you know, he looked at me, he was like, that's not what a woman looks like. He's like, is it a child? Is it a dog? I think was that was the joke. Mm. And I've certainly been in situations where I've seen women looked at like that and ignored like that, and I've been looked at like that and ignored like that. Mm. Um, I would be interested to see the discussion play out if he admitted to actually doing that. Yeah, totally. Because then you've got a situation where she is being racist and he's being sexist. And those yeah. things aren't incompatible. No. And then you have to admit that everybody has their shit. I mean, that's the problem. It's like he's probably not a saint at all. Because no one's a saint. I imagine he did look at her like that. But we don't know. We don't know, of course, was, and, and you can't know, and he has not admitted to it, and he and she's backed off saying that he did. Yeah. But I think it's an interesting discussion. I think the most interesting version of the discussion is if she admits that what she said perpetuates racist stereotypes, and he admits that he looked at her and dismissed her for not being good-looking. Because that's an interesting conversation. That's true, but it's like we don't have to look far to find men that will do that. Which yeah. I, I, well, I'm skirting a bit too close to not all men, so I'm going to skip, gonna sk- gonna skip back a little bit. Like, you know. um, but I do think if you can't... I, I think the problem when it comes to those racial things is the physicality and the violence thing. And it is, it is reducing men of ethnicity to their physicality. Yes. So for all we know, he had a very <laughs> he had a very complex situation going on in his hair. Yeah. Or maybe he had a family member die. Or maybe he had we don't know. Like he he could be about to ne- renegotiate his contract. Yes. It may just be and we both know this from going to public events. Sometimes you're at a public event but you really don't want to be there. Yes. And you'll be damned if you really want to socialise with anyone. Yeah. Or maybe he just doesn't like girls. Yeah. Maybe does like, and I mean the mov- the the television series that she wrote. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he was looking at and being like, "Ugh, I don't like your writing, lady." You know, you don't know, but there's this simultaneous, like, there's this cross situation where she's assumed that he's reduced her to her physicality, mm. and in doing so, has reduced him to his. Yeah. And so that is as much internalized misogyny, her assumptions about the world and and sexism as mm. it. E- genuinely does exist as it is her complete failure to take into account the way that her words would play into the other side of that argument totally now how do we apply this to Australia and New Zealand (laughs) (laughs) Do do you have an idea of how we apply this to Australia and New Zealand well I think we can look at our own sporting cultures uh, and also the rise of strong female leaders in both our countries Interesting. and the lack thereof them there because you've had one female prime minister yep we've had one well we've had two technically technically we've had two <laughs> but one wasn't there for very long uh-huh. but she does count our one wasn't there for very long either well you don't have prime ministers there for very long anyway no, that's kind of over um, so i think we come from very masculine societies. Yes. New Zealand and Australia, would that be fair? Yes. Um, and a lot of our empowerment early on in our country's histories came from physical achievement. 
Yes, I would say it's something slightly more complicated than that, particularly in Australia where you had the first fleet which was hugely male-dominated. Right. Like it, most of the criminals, most violent criminals or criminals who were sentenced to death and then had their sentences transmuted to transportation mm. um, were men in the first fleet. And then they sent more in the second fleet. Mm -hmm. So the first women who came out in the first fleet were very badly treated. They right. were very badly abused. The second lot of women, the second wave of women into Australia formed cartels and brothels wow. and centralised a huge amount of power. And on these kind of frontier societies, you needed to rely on women as much as on men. Mm. So both New Zealand and Australia got the vote relatively early mm. worldwide because yeah. you had these quite powerful women. Then the third wave of women who came to Australia were people back in England looking at the the society dominated by what they called whores. Yeah, right. And sending in gently bred young women to be, quote, God's police. So yeah. Anne Summers wrote this amazing book called Damned Whores and God's Police about that dynamic with Australians. In right. But yes, not to make everything more complicated, even though that's what I always, always, always do. No, it's fine. There's Let's nothing wrong with complicating things. They, there was a massive emphasis on masculine physical strength and the heroes of Australia were always men. Yeah, and it's the same thing in, in New Zealand, to a degree, to a degree. Um, because the Māori culture was already there and there were heroines within Māori culture and strong Māori female leaders. Um, so I think, but then Māori culture was so repressed in New Zealand yes. uh, for such a long time. We almost lost the written language. We almost lost tattooing. Do you know they used to um, sell tattooed heads that cut them off and, uh, and there was a trade in the 1800s? Gross. Uh, it's so weird, eh? Super weird. But it's, so if we look at that, it's been really interesting seeing the rise of my friend Michelle Court, uh, who wrote a brilliant book actually called um, "Things I Forgot to Stuff I Forgot to Tell My Daughter." Uh -huh. um, but like uh, seeing the rise of feminism uh, and seeing my own mother empowered by it because she was quite st strong inside but weak in expressing herself when she yeah. came over from the UK, and it's actually through interaction with a lot of my Pacific family that she found the strength to um, kind Be of express emotional. herself and get out. It's kind of shocked dad when he, she walked out on him. <laughs> but That's really interesting though. That's interesting. The Even the idea that emotionality is strength coming from yeah, I an Anglo culture where emotionality is by definition weakness. That's a cultural divide. I think repression is linked, you know, it's not linked, it's, it's part of oppression. If you're oppressing people, then of course you want them to repress themselves and their emotions and what they're feeling. Yeah. Because if they don't voice it, I genuinely believe um, that a voice, that a word uh, has actual power because you make it. That's mm. why I always get young comedians when we're doing a high school program in New Zealand or something and we go in and work for them. Always get the young men, I just say, we're going to make a safe place and for a minute, just do the comedy you want to do. And that's always horrific. It's always yeah. the most base volatile things. But getting them to actually physically say it instead of thinking it or whispering it and seeing the way an audience reacts, it, that's the quickest way I can teach them that... What they say has power. And what, yeah, and consequences. And it, uh, actually, there's a reason why people abhor these kind of ideas and concepts. Yeah. Because um, once you've made it, once it's out of your body, that's your breath. You've your body has created that breath. It's, yeah. You can't take it back. You've, you've said that joke, and the women in the room have heard you say that joke. Yeah. So, you know, we've made a safe space, but you've got to live with that now, mate. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's, it's interesting to see that 
applying that to New Zealand culture, from my point of view, seeing the expression come out and then seeing all the hurdles it has to jump yeah. for us to move forward. Because we talk so much in New Zealand about how progressive we are. We gave women the vote first. Yeah. We're nuclear free. That's pretty much it. <laughs> we made Lord of the Rings. Yep. Very progressive. Yeah. And, but we, we throw up so many roadblocks and we shout down so, so much. Well, it's like, I mean, if you want to look to America, their obsession with themselves as a class-free society has allowed them to perpetuate incredibly strong class divides. Yeah, it's insane. And they, yeah, and they, I still don't quite get how America doesn't see that. Right. Well, because they can't. Because their whole, their whole myth of themselves as a society is based on this egalitarian... Mm. dream and the idea that you know anyone can be president despite all of the evidence to the contrary yeah but if you if you take that away then you lose identity as an american or what america is if you don't believe this stuff that's clearly bullshit it's so mm. threatening to people if you take away you know if somebody says i'm a feminist and you go yeah but you said this or you did this yeah then you can't this idea that you can't be half or damaged or broken or inconsistent and still maintain this really s firm central identity. I blame Jesus. You blame Jesus. And I mean it's all I, or nothing. I, no, I generally mean that. I think you sin once, you go to hell. No, I, th I think we've been raised in a, in a society of cult of personality. Yep. Jesus of nothing else. Take away, take away all of the spiritual stuff, the miracles and all that. You're looking at a uh, leader, a social leader, with a strong cult of personality. Yeah. And I think that's so ingrained in Western society from such an early age that you grow up accepting that there will be a, a Messiah-like figure or apostles or there will heroes. be these special individuals. Superheroes. And what we forget in, like, when it comes to politics or any social movement is often these are just ordinary people in yeah. extraordinary jobs. Yes. So yeah, they're going to break or they're going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time or they're going to misfire know, on Nelson Mandela wasn't particularly nice to the women in his life. Yeah. For example. But we, we don't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because then it makes it really hard if you criticize someone. Mm. But look at what Lena Dunn has done for women. Yeah. You know, if she can't be a racist. Well, I mean, it, what, about how, what about everyone says and does things that aren't ideal and yeah. you get to also still be good at stuff. But that's, the th that's one of the reasons why people lash out so strongly. I, I referred a couple of times to this Paul Graham uh, piece mm -hmm. on keeping your identity small. So the more things you identify as, like mm. if you say, I am a Christian or mm. I am a feminist or I am a vegetarian, mm. those are brittle because they're such rigid frameworks. Mm. You, if that's part of who you are, your personhood, mm. Alice is this, mm. then if someone attacks your vegetarianism, says, well, actually, do you know that eating soy kills hundreds and thousands of mice and so on and so forth, or whatever, mm, yeah, or that yeah, you've yeah. deforested land in order to grow these soy crops that's killed native species mm. and attacks my vegetarianism. But I'm a vegetarian. I can't not be a vegetarian. Of course, and, and my reaction is m much more emotional mm. and passionate and, and defensive because it's attacking who I am. Whereas yeah. if I say, which is what I tend to say, you know, I very rarely eat meat. Mm. 
I try to do the best I can. Yeah. Then someone goes, oh, but you did this. And you go, oh, noted. Yeah. Soy is a problematic crop. Okay, I'll avoid soy then. Yeah. And if I have a choice between fish and soy, I might go fish. Yeah. 50% of the time. You know what I mean? In terms of, of, of keeping, holding your identities loosely mm. allows you to be more flexible with them. Yeah. So if you, if you say, you know, that you're a progressive and somebody says, yeah, but you said that thing that might be considered racist. Yeah. You can't have said that thing or you can't have meant that thing because you, otherwise your whole identity crumbles. I, I find that, like, that's uh, appealing to me. But uh, I'm an equivocator, so, of course, it's appealing to me. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, like Bruce Lee said, man, be as water. Yeah. That's, uh, and, uh, <laughs> which is where I think most, most Pacific Islanders in New Zealand got their early forms of philosophy from. And it was like, oh, but the Bible was like, no, man, we watched a whole bunch of martial arts films. <laughs> There's a lot of Eastern philosophy sewn into Pacific culture. And it's, I mean, well, it makes sense for Samoa because uh, the connection to the ocean. But also... There's something you said before about like making things more complicated. Mm. I've been thinking about this actually over Edinburgh because I've seen a few performers and there was a piece I think it was on Chortle or something about how comedy is becoming not funny. It's all dark and it's all overly complicated. I don't like the idea that complicated is bad. I think complicated is really good. And comedy is counterculture and we're in a culture that is increasingly simplistic. Comedy talks about the things that mainstream culture won't address. Mm. And now, what mainstream culture won't address is complexity. I don't think simple and complexity, I think, I don't think they're the opposites. Or maybe if they are, I don't think complexity means hard to understand. I think that's the narrative that we seem to have fallen into. Because I love trying to take complex issues, and I don't always, I'm not always good at it, trying to take complex things and make them easy to understand. Not make them simple, no, but make them accessible. Accessible. The way I talk about it is a shallow on-ramp. Right. I talk about pathways. Interesting. Yeah. I, for me, it's the, it's the you can get anyone, mm. and this is not true, mm. but I work with it as though it were true. Mm. You can get anyone, no matter how uneducated, no matter how anti-intellectual, you can get mm. anyone to a really high um, difficulty point like a really you can take them really far up the mountain get them to swallow a really mm. really big idea mm. if you make the on-ramp shallow enough if you put enough yeah. story or emotion or if you take them by the hand enough you yeah. can take them to somewhere they would never go on their own yeah and i think that's really cool we have something happening right now and it's probably happening here and it definitely is probably happening in australia but there are young men because that's who i mainly deal with in high schools but there are also young women too who feel that because of their background, mm. because of their upbringing, and because of their early grades, mm. that concepts like, like feminism um, or uh, like anti-intellectualism mm. are beyond them. And so they don't have to engage. And so they, and like, not in a, they don't have to whoopee, as in a, oh, that's not, going to be a part of their life. Yeah, that's not who I am. I'm that's not the not. kind of person who deals with these kind of ideas. Yeah, they don't Other understand. Other people do that. They, yeah, they think that politics is something that's done to them. They don't huh. understand that politics is always there. Yeah. They don't understand the, the way these ideas... So I try and... I always try and make my shows and I, once I've finished thinking about it, I go, okay, but how am I going to get 
the 14 year olds who come and see this show because they like my club set or they like the little set they see on TV where I do my accents and I talk about my nephews in there. How am I going to get those kids to talking about anti-intellectualism and race relations? Yeah. Yeah. To bring it back to the original entry point of the conversation, because that's something that really, really, really fascinated me. Mm -hmm. Um, This thing that people do have an urge to engage and they do have an urge to criticize and deconstruct and and so on but all of the attention as in New Zealand in Australia is being put in very much the wrong places or not useful places not leveraged places so where you say people who are talking about Lena Dunham mm. rather than talking about how you treat women in New Zealand or how we treat women in Australia or how yeah women, how white women treat black men in Australia. Well, I want to be clear, I'm not saying don't talk about it. Yes, talk about it. It's an interna- these are international people. But it's disproportionate. Yes, you can use that. Let what they have gone through, because in the end, this is two people like, who have big profiles, but they're in a foreign country. It's another country, and it's a different fight. But also, let it be the starting point for engaging in your own conversations on your local problems because if you're so passionate about changing the stuff you can yeah like in a smaller scale to yeah. changing the world yeah. someone might do a movie on it one but day you're never going to change the world with your facebook post no it is it is the it is it's planting a seed that will never grow whenever and feeling i do satisfied any, whenever i do any dirty comes hands facebook kind of posts which are <laughs> always become a small essay <laughs> but whenever i do it dangerous, dangerous. i only ever do them uh, as support. So if I have friends who are marching uh, and I cannot march with them because I'm in Australia or I'm in the UK, yeah. I will write something on what they're marching on uh, and I'll do it as a, as a form of solidarity. And it's, uh, it's, it's partly to inform because I have friends from all over the political spectrum. Yeah. Um, but it's also partly to support. So they can read that and know, look, I'm not there, but I am thinking of you and I'm thinking of you enough to have made this. Yeah. That's all I can do yeah. apart from giving you money. Yeah. But I'm not physically there to march with you. That's generally, unless I experience something race, like personal that yeah. I need to vent. I had a bit of racism um, in July, which was weird. And I just was sitting on a train and no one was looking at me and I didn't know what to do. So I just went on Facebook and, and wrote talked a about it. Yeah, I read that post about yeah. the guy who... Uh, yelled at me that I stank of curry. Yeah, so he was using a racial epithet that was inappropriate to use, so it didn't sting in the way it sh- no, should have. and my, my face clearly showed it. But I looked you were confused, confused by it, yeah. But then no one else would look at me, and I suddenly felt incredibly isolated, which I haven't really felt in London. Yeah. My, my experience of London has never been one where I've truly felt alone. Yes, I don't understand how people in London can be racist because for a thousand years it has been a melting pot. Yeah. This is London. London has always been multicultural. Yeah, it's a hub. Um, But they exist and they're there and Brexit has made them bolder. Um, It has absolutely... One of the interesting things as an Australian coming over (laughs) is that constant accusation of racism. Mm. And then, again, you get defensive or you react and you go, well, I'm not one of those ones. You know what I mean? I'm not one of those Aussies. But then, at the same time, some of the, the examples that people use for Australian racism are incorrect or inaccurate or mischaracterizations. For example, the use of the terms uh, which in Australia are not 
offensive or nowhere near as offensive. They're mildly offensive. Mm. Uh, Packy and wog. Yeah. In England, wog is an abbreviation of gollywog. So it's about yeah, yeah. black men, mostly, and mm. it's hugely racist. It's like the N-word. It's... Mm. It is. It's a killing word. Yeah. In Australia, it's for Italians, and they—it's something that you sort of throw around in the schoolyard. Mm. It would. No one would punch someone over yeah. it. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you'd. It's it's a it's a nothing word. It's well, a, like it's a mild insult in the same way as like and idiot like is. Like it's of the level of idiot. It's insulting, but it's yeah. not. You you go. I'm an idiot. Yeah. You're an idiot. Like it's not. It doesn't have that kind of knife to it that it does here and so those are th as examples of Australian racism are not the examples that I would use for mm. Australian racism I, <laughs> I said counter it I meant something else I don't know what I meant someone else can google it um, but I was going to say as a, uh, to balance that counter argument <laughs> yeah, no not even no. counter argument I'm just trying to give a New Zealand point of view to highlight yeah perspective this is how insane racism is yeah. I mean internationally. Yeah. I've been called the N-word with malice multiple times in New Zealand. As in, I'm going to fight you. I want you to throw the first punch, so I'm going to call you the N-word. Now, my last name is spelled N-O-K-I-S-E. Anyone listening can Google image me yeah. and understand I have talked about this on stage because that is ridiculous. But yeah. that's how racism works. Well, that idea, I mean, we, you, in Australia and New Zealand, we do not have the history of slavery that makes that word a killing word in America. Well, we no, have a different to be fair, history. You, no, you do, there is a history of slavery. A different history of slavery. A different though. history of slavery, yeah. And not of the people who looked, you know what I mean? No, that no, the, yeah, no. It's the a, reason it's that the African American experience is very different. There are parallels, there are similarities, yeah, but sure. there are also massive differences. Uh, to treatment of Pacific Islanders, to treatment of um, indigenous uh, New Zealanders uh, and Australians. Yeah, absolutely. But, and but the ignorance will still have someone yell at me the N-word. Yeah. Thinking that that's going to... And depending on how they say it, I have had a couple of fights over it. But it wasn't because they used that particular word and I went, that is abhorrent. It's because I could see what was behind that word. Yeah, it was the intent behind the word. They yeah. wanted to say the thing that would be the worst thing that they could say to you. I always joke that in New Zealand, the worst thing you can call someone is a dick. And the reason is, I have seen more fights start. It's about what's behind the word. Yeah. For some reason in New Zealand, the hardest word is actually someone who says, to, maybe it's the accent. Yeah. But if someone calls another person a dick and they really mean it, that's a fight. Like That is a throw down. <laughs> like, it's funny because I play with the C word in my show. Yeah. Um, which I, it's my podcast, I can say it if I want, huh? Yeah. Uh, but I don't find that an offensive word. Yeah, right. Which doesn't, it's never bothered me because yeah. I've only ever heard it affectionately used yeah. oh, by people, Aussies, Aussies particularly, but yeah. just among friends. I think friends. Kiwis have picked that one up as well. Yeah, it's and not. Scotland. <laughs> that said, if somebody spits it at you in the street. Oh, yeah. But then the, in, then the thing that upsets me is not the word it's that when a man shouts at you in the street mm. or looks at you in that way he's reminding you that he's physically stronger than you and he's drawing attention so this mm. so i think i s slightly disagree with you in the, in the idea that words your breath has power in that way mm. for me it's more that words are signals they're flags mm. so they they they're okay. a, they're a 
they point your eyes to a thing. A group of ideas and what those kind of epithet words do, Mm. this is just my sort of feeling about it, is that they point your eyes to the inequality that exists. Mm. If a man calls me a cunt, Mm. cunt is not the insult. Mm. He's saying, you are sex, weak, there's Mm. a history here. If it was 100 years ago or if there wasn't police here, I could rape you, I could beat you. I could own you, I could ruin you. Mm. So he's drawn attention to an inequality that exists in society, which is Mm. why it's not an insult between friends. It has no impact between friends, which is why your mate calling you the N-word wouldn't hurt you Mm. because there's no inequality to be drawn attention to. So when people throw their energy into Facebook or Mm. into fixing somebody's misstep or you know they're, 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 they're the thing that they're upset about is that somebody's drawn attention to a thing that exists if somebody mm. calls a trans person something mm. it's not a problem if trans people aren't treated badly mm. like calling a white man a cracker doesn't hurt because there's no history there Especially of in abuse a, I think I heard a Caucasian mate of mine got called a honky <laughs> Which or the H word? I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> and um, in New Zealand, and there's just no history. Yeah. Like it's like our prime minister's name is John Key, and so there were often jokes made about that. Yeah, but, but that's a joke. It's again, yeah. it doesn't have the sting or the bite. I'm, it's funny the amount of strange when you're when you're beige, you just get you get all sorts of different racially offensive words and I don't I've punched a person for calling me a pom before because I used to have a real hard British accent when I was a kid growing up oh interesting and I didn't I thought pom was on the same level as something else I told my mum she was like well you're Welsh but yeah I suppose they could call you a pom I was like what I just I just punched a dude yeah, out like because you, you knew it was a racial epithet and that those were yeah, not okay totally. yeah but there's no inequality that it's pointing to yeah and so when people sort of take on other people's epithets. Yeah. I feel sort of like that. that's not the fight that we should be having. The fight that we should be having is the much, much, much harder fight, which is reducing the inequality so the words don't mean anything anymore. I think, yeah. I think when any celebrities in these situations, like if they have a, I don't know, what do we call it, a misstep, an accident? Mm. You know, in terms of their language. Yeah. I think it, there's, there's two things. One, you need to get acknowledged a trauma. Yeah. Two, it's very helpful if they can admit it and come around. But third, you then have to use that example, which has been in the news cycle for, what, uh, like 90, 102 hours now? Yeah. To actually go, okay, but aren't there massive problems with race, with um, gender, in our own societies yeah. that we can... It's good. It's great that everyone's passionate about this. Well done. Well done, everyone passionate about race. Yeah. Well done, everyone passionate about As gender. As I say in my show, noticing someone else's shit doesn't make you good. Yeah. There's no balance there. There's no seesaw no. that you're sitting on that yeah. condemning someone else pushes you up some ladder. Yeah. She was racist. Well done. You've, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, do we well, gold, gold star? Do you want a gold you've star? cleansed your hands. Yeah. You've ritually absolved yourself of responsibilities yeah. because you've noticed someone else's ill yeah. action. That's never been anything that's that... That's not... I always say racism is like pushing a boulder uphill. 
right? You can you can stop. You can you can take a rest, but you've got to keep pushing. You can't go back the other way. <laughs> I think I just thought of this analogy. It's like walking down the street and you watch somebody walk past a homeless person yeah. and not give them money and you go, that guy didn't give the homeless person money. What an asshole. Yeah. And then you keep walking. Yeah. Like. It's totally, yeah. That's the culture we're living in now. Yeah. That people congratulate themselves for their opinions. Yeah. As though the opinions were actions because you, by typing your opinion and putting it on the internet, you feel like you have performed an action. I have, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, we say that as we podcast, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I think you do have to, and maybe as, as you get older, you begin to, or maybe it's as you understand mortality, like maybe you're young and people have died and you suddenly have a great understanding of mortality. You realize you have limited time. So you begin to go, what am I going to do with this time? What, what are my fights? Yes. Like what are the things I can throw the, the not infinite amount of energy and time I have into? Yeah. What do I want to, you know, if I make it to 70 and I'm on a bed, what do I want to look back and go, oh man, I'm glad I was in that fight. Yeah. I'm glad I helped that Do you want to pour your small bucket of water into the ocean or into a, your pond in your backyard? What's going to raise the water level? Yeah, pretty much. It's like, I think that's something I'm only coming to terms with in the last couple of years when, when, uh, death has really come knocking on the door uh, but also it's the kind of stories I want to tell artistically I go what, what I've only got between now and you can't do stand up to you well maybe you can no one's got there yet but in terms of I've only got so many one hour shows yeah and even then it and takes time to so long an audience that's going to listen to you and you're only going to be relevant for so long you're only going to be speaking the language of the youth for so long the window is so small yeah so what do you want to make? And then if you're devoting time to that, with that other time you have, do you, like, uh, do, you do this charity, that charity? Yeah. And so it comes back to what you're saying about like, you go, what is me? And what, if I say no to this, it doesn't mean that it lessens me. Yeah. You know, if I'm not helping to fundraise for soy farms, it doesn't mean yeah. you know, I'm going to help the fish farm instead. Look, I've, I've done the research. Yeah, this is the thing. And I think there is a responsibility. To, to return to your um, your point about this being a podcast, and mm. it, I agree. I think one of the things that I want to do with this podcast is just create a space where people can have long and complicated discussions where there's no simple answer, where you're not coming down on one side or another, you're not standing next to a flagpole stating, uh, you're, you're unpacking yeah. and un unfolding things. But that's productive for my listeners, maybe, <laughs> um, but it's productive for me. This mm. is like a Buddhist, like in the way that Buddhism is inherently sort of selfish. Yeah. It's about me being able to think by talking and to be challenged in a way that isn't going to threaten me, mm. to bring people in like having tea, this safe space mm. where you can say something and then go, oh, no, that was wrong. I didn't mean what I said. Let me say it a different way or... Or let me think about it a different way, or yeah. or whatever it happens to be. That's what I, not to get super meta about, but but that's what I do with the podcast. It's it's in some ways entirely self-indulgent. No, but I also I, no, I agree with that completely. I because I consider this a luxury. Yeah. Like I get to hang out with a mate, drink an obscene oh, that is amount. So much. How did you manage to get I through don't know. that? I'm going to feel really sick in about an hour. A, a lot of we. Yeah. 
I also there's probably heaps of sugar in there, and I'm I'm clean shaven at the moment, so I'm probably gonna wake up with a whole bunch of shaving spots tomorrow. Oh, good. Yeah, it's nothing like being 34 and still getting spots. Oh man, wrinkles and spots at the same time. Mm. Nothing makes you more conscious of the fact that just as human bodies, we are a bag of slop. I know, to be fair, and I do have to thank my mother for this as well. When I was going through puberty, she was going through menopause. So I've kind of always been slightly aware that there will be spots and wrinkles in my life. Uh, though she wears it well. so Especially when you go through menopause. <laughs> yeah, well, the time will come. <laughs> what, are, what happens to men? Do we, do we, what do we get? Your testosterone drops, you get worse at dancing. You know how old men dance weird? Yeah. It's because their sperm are stale. Really? So your testosterone Look, look how my voice just rose. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is the level of shock you yeah. have. Like, yeah, you, that's why men of a certain age, I'm when gonna, they don't dance, if they're smart. Because I'm going to lose dancing? Uh, you won't be as good at it. Oh, man, that sucks. I love dancing. But I love you, it you so just, much. You look at the way old men dance, even good dancers. Yeah. It's just there's something about their body language that goes... I'm not fertile in the same way as I used to be. <laughs> Man, I wonder if there's something... I don't mind being less fertile. I can handle it. I just don't want to lose dancing. You'll still be able to enjoy dancing. It's okay. not like you'll lose rhythm or enjoyment. You'll just lose that special sparkly twinkle in your hips that's brought from fresh sperm. I don't know how hips work. Oh, uh, yeah. I was fresh sperm <laughs> But apparently it is. My apparently God, that man's hips move so smoothly. They did a study like on it. Like his sperm is full of life and effervescence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They did a study on it. I choose to perpetuate that study even though 60% of studies are inaccurate according to a study. Oh, there you go. So, problematic at least. That, that child in the background is, is yeah. weeping for my, weeping my for impending loss, loss of dancing. <laughs> I think, yeah, men, your, your, your fertility goes down. You'll become a little bit less easily angered. Oh, that's good. I have a lot of anger. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to... I'll, I'll trade... I'll, I'll lose that. I don't mind losing that. We have to wrap up because we're getting to the end of the hour and my All battery right. life. But listen to John Grant's song, GMF. It is mm -hmm. like one of the most beautiful encapsulations of the artistic sort of um, hero figure. Okay. Like stand-up comedians particularly, yeah. if it doesn't hit you, it'll be like, I know that guy. Oh, I am that amazing. guy. I know that guy. Cool. It's called GMF, which stands for Greatest Motherfucker. Awesome. And it is a great song to listen to. It makes me really happy to listen to. Um, but where can people find you online? James uh, on, on Facebook, Writing Wrongs. <laughs> um, and then on Twitter, at James Nokise. And you're running festivals or... Uh, I am. Uh, I can be found physically uh, back in New Zealand, uh, and then in Australia next year for the Perth, Adelaide, maybe Melbourne. Come I have to Melbourne. I have never been to Melbourne. I'm, I'm deeply embarrassed about it now. Okay, you're gonna Facebook message me, and I'll talk you through Melbourne. All right, cool. All right, you're having tea with Alice. Thank you.